Welcome, everyone, this evening to our Bible class. We are going to learn about the Methodist Church mainly today. And if we go to our history map here that I've shown you a few times, if any of you want to know how to get a hold of this, it's I actually shared it in the Bible class in our church app under the Bible class discussion questions. And that's a map that you can actually open and zoom in on so that you can see all that tiny little writing. So we're doing the Methodist Church. And if you look closely at where the Methodists are here on this uh, time map, you'll see that they derived from the Episcopalian Church. Uh, right around 1609 is when this kind of movement started uh, by John and Charles Wesley. They were Episcopalians. But they started with a small group of students meeting with them, and uh, they were actually called Methodists. That name came about uh, due to their methodical approach to spiritual and religious practices. They were actually students at Oxford in England, and they didn't like the formalism, the ritualism of the Episcopal Church. So they formed these religious societies called Holy Clubs. John and Charles Wesley during their time at Oxford University in the early 1700s. So these societies were instrumental in the development and the spread of the Methodist movement as it began. So a little later, around 1739, John Wesley actually began open-air preaching, so to speak, like reaching large audiences. And this marked the growth of the Methodist revival. And they formulated three simple rules for their movement, the general rules, if you say so, of the Methodist church. So the first one was do no harm. The second one was do good. And the third one was attending upon all the ordinances of God. Now, you know, right away, you know, when you have to start formulating rules like that for any kind of religion what is the point i mean if we are teaching the scriptures and if we're we want to follow jesus be his disciples there are no human rules that need to be emphasized other than what jesus is teaching us that's why one of the first studies that we do with people is the word of god study to make this point from the beginning that all we need is god's word for us to turn to God to know the truth and the true path. Just like Peter says here, his divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So this passage right here is speaking to the called people, to those who recognize and acknowledge that by his power, we have everything that we need for this life and for godliness through his knowledge. So we don't need to come up with any rules or teach anything other than the scripture because as we also know from the word of god study second timothy 3 16 and 17 all scripture is inspired by god and it's profitable for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of god 
may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this training to completion, notice how it's aimed at the man of God, the person who considers themselves, I am of God, I'm a woman of God, I'm a man of God. And we see the scriptures as profitable just because they are from God. We don't follow after man-made traditions, man-made rules. We don't need any of that. So right away, when there's a denomination that starts formulating rules or something other than the scripture, that's a big red flag that, uh-oh, we're following some kind of man-made rule. We're not really following God's way. So back to the dates here, back, uh, sort of in the uh, 1760s, then we see that finally the Philip Embury and Barbara Heck were among the first to establish an actual Methodist society in America. So this led to further expansion of the Methodist movement in the new world. And so the formal establishment, the Methodist Episcopal Church, 1784, was formally established in America at what was called the Christmas Conference with somebody named Thomas Koch and Francis Asbury. They were the first bishops of the Methodist Church here in New York. And so they convened in Baltimore, and something came out of that, something called the Book of Discipline, prepared by Wesley himself, was adopted by the Methodist Church. So what is this book about? So this is Remember, the, we talked about the Anglican Book of Common Prayer when we looked at the Anglican Church, and they had a whole bunch of articles. I think it was 39 articles. So Wesley took the book, and he pared it down. I think he, he took away some of the articles, and he was left with something like 25 articles, and that evolved into the present Book of Discipline. You can see that this is a photo of the cover of the 2016 edition. So this Book of Discipline, interestingly enough, right? is revised every four years at the United Methodist Church General Conference, which is the denomination's top policymaking body. So they change things reflecting their current theology, any kind of societal shift, any kind of administrative need. But think about this. When you have a document that you're supposed to be following and you know, you're constantly changing. I mean, what are we doing here? Are we following God's word? Do we revise the Bible? Do we take the Bible every four years and say, well, you know, according to common society now, uh, we need to change some things or we need to stop believing some things. Imagine that. Then it wouldn't be God's word. So if you're a Methodist and you're following this book of discipline, you have to ask yourself the question, what am I following here? Am I following a creed that needs revision on occasion? So I'm following something that's man-made because as we read in 2 Peter 1.3, hey, we've already received everything we need for life and godliness that was delivered in the first century, the word of God. Anything other than that doesn't reflect a value of God. It reflects a value of man. And we were warned about that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. We were warned that even if we, this is Paul speaking, even if we, even if me, an apostle, says Paul, or an angel from heaven should preach to you something different, a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. Here's the apostle Paul warning. There shouldn't be anything other than what was already handed down in the first century. This is basic Christianity, Christianity 101. So if your church is based on some kind of creed or book of discipline or whatever you want to call it that needs revision every certain amount of time, 
you are adding. You certainly have added to the scriptures or you've taken away from it. You're not really following the word of God. And as we know from Mark 7, 13, traditions of man, rules made by men, make void the word of God. As Jesus says, you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. So we already see some red flags in this Methodist tradition and in this Methodist doctrine. So what, what are some of the things that they believe? Well, they do believe in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They also believe in justification by faith, which presents another problem. We've talked about this before. They, the belief that salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so this doctrinal point they emphasize dismisses the need for anything else for salvation, which presents a problem. Because when we look at Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Methodists nowadays don't believe that you need baptism to, to be saved. They believe that you need it eventually, but it's not the point of salvation. They believe that, oh, by faith alone, I am already saved. They use Ephesians 2.8. That says, for you are saved by grace through faith and this not of yourselves. This is the gift of God. And yes, that is true. We understand from scripture that we are saved by grace. It's, it's not anything that I do that makes me deserve salvation. However, we need to also take the scriptures as a whole, not pick them apart. And we have to understand what James says here in James 2, 24 and 26, where James teaches, look, a person is justified by work. So that's completely the opposite of what the Methodists believe. They say we're justified by faith. Direct contradiction here in James where it says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The scripture is speaking very clearly there. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So these are things that you can share if somebody is a Methodist or believes in any of the Wesleyan traditions, that's Methodism because of John Wesley, Wesleyan tradition. So belief alone doesn't get you forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the spirit, which is the mark of salvation. You need to take the steps of faith and obey the gospel to receive its full effect in you. Now, going back to Wesley, Wesley himself as an Episcopalian, right? Uh, starting out from that tradition, he strongly advocated for baptism, infant baptism, though. So he thought it was necessary, some form of baptism. Uh, he saw it, though, as a mean of grace. So he didn't see it as absolutely necessary for salvation, but as as, as a means of grace, i.e., you know, the uh, the sacrament, right? He believed it was a sacrament, taking from the tradition of the Catholics and the Episcopalians. And so he acknowledged the reality of God's grace working, even outside the bounds of the sacrament. But the problem most Protestants have is reconciling forgiveness of sins from God outside of believing and being immersed for the forgiveness of sins, as many Bible passages relate, especially Acts 2.38. So all the Protestants eventually have to come to the to realization that faith alone does not just save. Faith is a first step, yes, but we have to proceed with the steps of obedience. So some of these passages that I'm sharing with you really apply for any form of Protestantism that believes in that faith alone justifies. 
So they also believe in the authority of the scriptures. Funny, right? I mean, they they say that the Bible is inspired, is the inspired word of God, the authoritative source for faith and practice. But okay, if you affirm that the scriptures are your authority, then why is it that you need a book of discipline? <laughs> why is it that you need some other book or creed in addition to it? So are you really believing? My question to anyone who says that in the Protestant denomination if you affirm the authority of the scripture, why do you resort to writing creeds, rules, or ordinances that you have to change every few years? Because that right away, as Jesus said, makes void the word of God when you add the traditions of men. Have you ever wanted to read the Bible in plain English, a language that you can actually understand and follow? Well, there is a translation like that called God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nations Mission Society. This is the only translation of the Bible in English that follows a dynamic equivalent translation philosophy. It makes the Bible very easy to understand and it flows very naturally in the English language. You can follow along my podcast where I read to you from God's Word Translation for one whole year. You can search for the podcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast reader. Search for God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nation Mission Society. You can also look it up under my name, Pedro Gelibert. So they also believe, like most Protestant churches, in two sacraments, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. But let's remember this idea of sacrament, that's a man-made construct. There's no such concept of a sacrament in, in Scripture. But Protestants do believe sacraments are the venues of God's grace. That's how they explain it. So, oh, yeah, we get God's grace when we get baptized. We get God's grace when we take the Lord's Supper. But, you know, no such idea is presented in the Scripture. But let's see what they believe about baptism, right? As many Protestant denominations believe, Methodists believe in infant baptism that comes straight from the Catholic Church because they also believe in original sin, which is a problem, right? People keep wanting to baptize babies because of this original sin idea. And the New Testament doesn't really provide any explicit examples of infant baptisms. But the Methodists, like many other liturgical denominations, they infer this practice of baptism. And sometimes they'll cite scriptures like Acts 16, uh, 15, or 1633, where they say, well, you know, when they got baptized, whole households were baptized, as we see here in Acts 1615, or in Acts 1633, right? Right away, you know, he and all his family were baptized, you know, so if they all got baptized, you know, we're talking about the people in the household, and households usually have children, right? But they're jumping, you know, a point here, they're they're jumping to this point and assuming that just because it says the households were baptized, that means that they were baptizing baby. They don't understand that people who are baptized do it because they have faith. Only people who are capable of believing can respond in repentance, can respond to the command in Acts 2.38 to repent and be baptized. An infant can't respond in repentance. You know, that speaks to the individual need of belief and repentance. And so if you put the scriptures together, again, not take them apart and pick and choose as you like, 
then you have to put them together and realize, oh, really? Okay, so if it says that all the household was baptized, that means they're talking about people that were capable of responding to this call of the gospel and repenting and having a change of heart and then submitting to baptism. Uh, they also use this other passage in Mark 10, 14 to say, oh, no, but, you know, the little children also need to get baptized. They need to get right with Jesus. Look, Jesus loved the little children. Look what it says here. Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom belongs to such as these. So, see, we need to baptize them. But again, the context in this passage is not about salvation or even baptism. There's no mention of baptism in this passage. There, This is not even about salvation of anything. This verse shows that the little children are already citizens of the kingdom of God, that they don't need to do anything. They have, they're innocent. And if anything, this verse speaks to the fact that there is no original sin in children that they need to get rid of because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So this verse actually speaks against their idea of infants needing to be baptized because of original sin. But getting back to the original sin question, if we take a look at this passage in Ezekiel, right, where it says, you ask, why doesn't the son bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? Because it used to be believed in the culture at that time that if, if I'm a sinner, then my son inherits my sin. Somehow my son has to pay for my sin, that uh, sin runs in families or something like that. But here, the prophet Ezekiel made it clear, right? It says, uh, the person who sins, he says here, is the one who will die. A son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity. A father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. So if anything, this passage really clarifies that sin doesn't get inherited. It doesn't pass on from the father to the son or from the son to the father. So that means that there is no original sin. That whole idea that, oh, because Adam's sin, you know, that sin came to us, that somehow, oh, it's on me and I got, got to get rid of it. No, not at all. The whole thing about what Adam brought into the world was death because Adam's sin, and that's why we die. It's not the sin itself. It's the death. We die, yeah, because eventually we do become sinners, but we're not born with sin that has to be taken away. That's a concept that is assumed or or presumed uh from, from really uh, bad readings or, or misinterpretation of the scripture. So let's touch a little bit on what they believe about the Lord's Supper itself. So historically, taking the Lord's Supper is a quarterly event for a lot of Methodist churches. Recently, there's been a movement within the United Methodist Church and other Methodist bodies in recent years to recover Wesley's emphasis on frequent communion. So many churches now celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly, especially in more liturgical settings. However, many Protestant denominations do take the Lord's Supper other than weekly, sometimes monthly, sometimes yearly or quarterly. Does the Bible really say anything about this practice? You know, what does the Bible really say about the frequency of the Lord's Supper? Can we determine from the text that there's a particular frequency uh, in which we take the Lord's Supper. So let's let's start out a little bit with the Old Testament, with something called the showbread. And the showbread, which was also known as the bread of the presence or the bread of the, of the face of God, was an important component of the worship rituals in the tabernacle. 
and later in the Temple of Jerusalem. This showbread was placed on a gold-covered table. It stood in the holy place inside the tent of the tabernacle, just outside of the Holy of Holies, as we read in Exodus 25, 23 through 30. Right? So the bread was continually before the Lord, and it served as a symbol of God's everlasting covenant and his constant provision that God was always providing bread, that he was always providing life and sustenance to everyone. So the showbread consisted of 12 loaves made of fine flour. And the number 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israel. God provided for each tribe. These loaves were arranged in two stacks on the table, just like you see there in the picture, according to Leviticus 24, 5, and 6. And every Sabbath, the, the priest would replace the old loaves with the new loaves, according to Leviticus 24, 8. The bread that was removed was considered most holy. And so this replaced bread was to be eaten by the priest and only within the holy precincts. They couldn't take it out, signifying them partaking in the sacred food set aside for God, Leviticus 24, 9. So from this type, right, this presents a type in the Old Testament, a type that later became what the Lord's Supper that we're taking now uh, represents. And so in the Old Testament, what was it? We can clearly see that it was a weekly ritual concerning the eating of this bread, emphasizing what? The communion with God, right? The people's communion, the people's eating sustenance provided by God, and it was a weekly affair. So does the New Testament also talk about this weekly or gives us a hint about this weekly? Because the Old Testament certainly does. Well, in the New Testament, what we see is of this type, right? The, the showbread, the, the bread of sustenance from God. Jesus in the New Testament refers to himself as the bread of life, John 6, 35, which can be seen as a deeper fulfillment of the symbolic presence of God in the showbread. Jesus is the one who provides spiritual sustenance. He embodies God's presence among his people. I mean, look at what it says in Matthew 26, 26 through 28. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And what did he say? Take and eat this. This is my body. And he took a cup and gave, gave thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So Jesus kind of takes that type of the showbread and owns it. And he says, I am the bread of life. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 26, particularly here, verse 26, we see Jesus or Paul really saying, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that phrase, as often as, right? What does that mean? Obviously, it means a recurrence of something, right? A recurring observance. It doesn't specify the exact frequency, right, in that particular passage, but it does imply that it was a recurring thing. So if we continue reading in Acts 2.42, it mentions the early believers devoted themselves to the breaking of bread along with prayer, fellowship, and the apostles' teaching. So this breaking of bread 
might refer to regular meals, but many Bible scholars believe it really is referring to the Lord's Supper, the communion that united the brethren together. They were coming together to what? To remember what Jesus did for them in this observance and proclaiming the Lord's death until he came again and practicing what Jesus said, as often as you get together, eat this in my name. And so when we come to Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it makes sense that when it says there, on the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Now we see that this indicates a weekly observance, at least in the Troas community. But, you know, this is what all the churches practice. As Paul says, all the churches practice the same thing. So we string all these verses together and that's where we come out. Okay, you know what? We can safely say that by example and by command and by inference, all three, we can see that it probably was a weekly observance on the first day of the week. They gather together to break bread. And this is what the churches practice nowadays. Every week that we get together, as Jesus says, as often as you get together, do this in memory of me. And we all get together on the first day of the week. And this is, and this is what we celebrate. So from the Methodist church, we have a whole bunch of denominations that eventually started to form from this Methodist church. And here I, I give you a list of them. I'm not going to go really into all the different specifications and how they differ from one another, but you might recognize some of them in Queens. We see the AME church. There's a lot of those around in, in Queens and in the city, African Methodist Episcopal. Well, guess what? They're, they're Methodist. We see Wesleyan Methodist, even Methodist Protestant Methodist Episcopal, because remember the Methodists came from the Episcopal church, so they share a lot in common. So here's a few of those denominations, and here's a little bit more. Some of the more modern ones, the latest one, 1968, the United Methodist Church. And so we have just a whole bunch of denominations that differ slightly from each other, just from this one branch alone. If you like this podcast, Please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. This ensures I will continue producing authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me. Thank you and have a blessed day. Let's talk a little bit about the Salvation Army, because interesting enough, the Salvation Army is an interesting conglomeration of things. It, it, it comes from the Methodist Church, right? But it also it gets into the holiness movement, which we're going to talk about, God willing, in the next class. We're going to talk about this holiness movement or holiness agitation, as it was known back then, which gave birth eventually to the Pentecostal and the charismatic movements. And interestingly, the Salvation Army is kind of like caught between those movements. It comes out of the Methodist Church, and it also gets influenced a little bit by the charismatic tradition, believe it or not. So this Salvation Army was founded in the mid-19th century in London by William Booth, a Methodist minister, and his wife, Catherine Booth, they were from a group of Methodists known as the Methodist Reformers. So in this Methodist minister, William Booth, they were deeply committed to evangelism. They really 
thought that it was very important to go out there and share the gospel. We understand that, right? We're deeply committed to that. But they also were interested in social reform. They became very dissatisfied with with what they saw as the formalism, as the high church and and uh, dogmatic practices of the Methodist church at the time. So they left the denomination and started to form their own ministry. So in 1865, there was a revival in East London. Both William and Catherine Booth, they started to work in this very poverty-stricken area in East London, and they made it their goal to reach out to the marginalized people, the disadvantaged people, and their ministry included a lot of street preaching, and they provided food and shelter for many of the poor there, trying to address the physical needs as well as the spiritual needs of the people in the area. So little by little, we got the formation in 1878 of the organization formally named the Salvation Army, and it was characterized by a military style structure. You know, when you look at them, you know, you see they all have the same uniforms. They have soldiers, they have officers, they have brass bands. So it looks like a, you know, it looks like a military style organization. And they have very strong focus on social work and evangelism. And that's what even today, the hallmark of the Salvation Army is their social work. And so the Salvation Army expanded very rapidly, both in the United Kingdom and internationally. It became known for its social services, including homeless shelters, soup kitchens, addiction rehabilitation programs. So what do they, what do they believe? Well, the Salvation Army is rooted in some traditional Christian beliefs, emphasizing, again, salvation by faith, as, as we talked about before, as many Protestant denominations do. But it also has that extra component of commitment to social justice and caring for the poor and the marginalized. That's something that characterizes the Salvation Army above other denominations. And today, the Salvation Army operates in 130 countries. You, know, you didn't even, you probably didn't even know they were a church, right? You just thought that they were, they were some kind of charitable organization. But they are actually a denomination. They have a church. They have a general who's like the Pope. He's the one who. It supervises all the other soldiers there. So what do they believe about salvation? Their beliefs are, you know, in line with the majority of Protestant beliefs, particularly the Methodist belief, which we call the Wesleyan Arminian tradition coming from the Methodist church from Charles and John Wesley. Like we mentioned before, justification by faith only, emphasizing just the need to repent and to convert, but that's it. No, nothing, no form of obedience of the gospel is, is talked about here. The Salvation Army also believes in a second work of grace, which they call sanctification, where a believer is cleansed from the sin inside, empowered to live a holy life. This is kind of like where the holiness movement comes in, because you start to see this influence of the work of the grace of the Holy Spirit. They call the, the, the second, sorry, the holiness movement started to use that language, the second grace. What is that? The Holy Spirit working in you and the need for sanctification. That's kind of language that we're going to see in the holiness movement, which eventually involves 
uh, evolves to the Pentecostal tradition. So they believe that the Holy Spirit is given at the point of conversion. We really didn't, not too many denominations before that we've spoken of so far, talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. No, this talk of the Holy Spirit really begins in the Methodist church. And eventually it forms its own denomination or its own movement out of the Methodist church called the holiness movement. And so we have the Salvation Army kind of like bridging that gap between the Methodist and the holiness movement with all this talk of the Holy Spirit. They believe that the Holy Spirit is given at the point of conversion. They don't associate the gift of the Holy Spirit with baptism as the scriptures say. When we read Acts 2.38, we know that when we repent, we're baptized, and what are we given? We're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is very clear about that, but they do not emphasize it. They just say, oh, no, no, you, re you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. You know, When you believe, you're saved. There's no baptism mentioned. There's no obedience mentioned. There's no works of faith mentioned, as James says, works that justify you. We know that from what the Bible says, that forgiveness of sins is synonymous with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. So if we look at this passage in Titus, we read here, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the what, and here's now it specifies how that salvation came to be through the washing. There's a mention of washing, right? A mention of water washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So there the concept of, of a washing of water is tied together with the Holy Spirit here in this passage. Verse six says, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So even though Paul here doesn't mention baptism. We know he does in many other passages, in Colossians, in Galatians, in Romans chapter 6. I mean, it's not like Paul forgot baptism. No, but in the language itself, you can see him alluding to baptism when he talks about the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So we understand that this passage is teaching that there are works that the Holy Spirit is doing, a work of regeneration, a work of renewal that comes through what? It comes through washing. And what is that washing? Well, that washing is the washing that we get when we get immersed, as Peter talks about, and uh, as, as Paul talks about in, in uh, Romans chapter 6, Colossians 2, uh, Galatians 3. I mean, there are just so many passages that link that baptism to the new birth, as Jesus talks about in John 3, 5 as well. So it is the Holy Spirit, yes, who by God's mercy saves us through the generation and renewal. But how do we get the Spirit? How do we get the Spirit to work in us? The Bible doesn't leave us without an answer. It clearly states, even in the Great Commission, Jesus points out the importance and ties the baptism here to the belief why do the Protestant denominations keep taking the baptism out? When Jesus himself says, no, go therefore make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. I mean, can it be any more simpler? Yet, many Protestants, just for some reason, 
they they just say no faith only and they they're blind really to the simplicity of the scriptures to to perform this first step of obedience so the Methodist church, they don't really practice any sacraments. So that's a unique thing. I mean, sorry, not the Methodist church, the, the Salvation Army. Many churches, right, that we studied so far have some sacraments, even if it's just the two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But now we come upon, we're starting to see in, in this denomination, the Salvation Army, and the ones that follow are moving away from this idea of sacraments. They don't practice any sacraments. So that's a different thing from traditional protestant beliefs they don't practice the sacrament of baptism they don't practice the lord's supper they do believe that these rituals can be meaningful they just say oh you don't need to do them they're not essential for salvation so instead of formal sacraments that a lot of other denominations push what the salvation army emphasizes is sacramental living they believe that every moment of a believer's life has to be in communion with God. And how is that done? Well, they say you have to serve other people, which is very commendable, right? I mean, we, we ought to do that regardless. That's what we also, as Christians, as followers of Christ, need to be known for, right? More so even than the Salvation Army, right? We are the arms and the feet of Jesus, you know? So as Jesus moved out into the community and helped the poor and, and, and fed the poor and helped many other people, we, as the body of Christ, need to be known for that even more than the Salvation Army. So their emphasis, right, on social justice, ministering to the poor and destitute is what, is what really hallmarks the Salvation Army itself. So God willing, next week, we're going to look at this new development from the Methodist line, which is this holiness agitation. We started to see some some thoughts here in the Salvation Army, this idea of the spirit, this idea of sanctification that starts to come out of the Wesleyan tradition, but really gets fully developed in the Salvation Army. And then later on in this holiness or agitation movement, which eventually gives way to the Pentecostal and charismatic denomination. So that's what we're going to, Lord willing, study uh, our next time. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for your participation. God bless you and have a good evening. Cause it won't be a Baptist that's sitting on the throne. A Presbyterian or a Methodist that's calling us home. And it won't be a charismatic that plays that trumpet too. Let's all just live for Jesus because he's coming back real soon. Sun, and not rip